from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloronipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, December 12th. Today, the untold story of American jobs affected by automation, the rise of random chat apps, and the president's new executive order on Judaism. There's been so much discussion on the presidential campaign trail, particularly among Democrats, about automation killing jobs. I'm Heather Long, the economics correspondent at The Washington Post. It's interesting when the most of the candidates talk about this, they're almost always talking about male-dominated jobs, so manufacturing workers. We could put 15 million people to work rebuilding our roads, our bridges, our water systems, our waste... New jobs that are good jobs, that are jobs in manufacturing, that are going to be good union jobs. Or truck drivers, the possibility that truck driving could go away. Three and a half million truck drivers in this country, and my friends in California are piloting self-driving trucks. What is that going to mean for the three and a half million truckers or the seven And look, that's a very important discussion, but it became very clear that most of these candidates are missing half the story. We've seen almost as big job losses among administrative positions. So administrative assistants and secretaries and clerks and bookkeepers, and the vast, vast majority of those jobs are held by women. Since 2000, which is also a big tipping point for factory workers, we've seen more than 2 million administrative jobs go away. And looking ahead, the Labor Department has made forecasts about which jobs are going to see the most losses in the next decade. And number one on that list is secretaries and administrative assistants. And I think what you're saying about the ways that jobs like this, jobs like being a secretary or administrative assistant, was actually a real path to career success for women without college degrees— I think that really strikes true with experiences of people in my family or even people that I see on TV and in pop culture. I think that if you watched Mad Men, you know, I just saved this company. I signed the first new business since Lucky Strike left. But it's not as important as getting married. Again. Well, I was just made director of agency operations. A title, no money, of course. And if they poured champagne, it must have been while I was pushing the mail cart. What you understood was that that ad agency only ran because of the way that Joan, who was kind of the head secretary, because she was running it behind the scenes. What came up over and over again in interviews for this story, when these people were laid off, usually after turning 50 or 60, it was this feeling that there's no loyalty anymore, that they had been such an integral part of this company for 20 or more years, and that, boom, within a short meeting in a conference room, they were done. Take, for example, Rita Maxwell. We spoke in a diner in Northern Virginia. I hate when people say, oh, you know, this isn't personal, it's just business. No, no, it's very personal. You know, you've now affected my life. I don't have a job. My age is going to play against me. I already know that. What in the world am I going to do if I don't land somewhere? I've run through my savings. 
one of those women who walked out of high school and into an administrative job, first for the government and then over into the private sector, where she spent nearly 20 years in her final company and has only been able to land temporary jobs ever since that pay less than half of what she used to earn. I guess, is there advice that you would have to people that... I would tell them do not go into administrative support for the simple fact, no loyalty. You can give your entire life. You can work a 60-hour week every week for three years. And if somebody better comes along that they can get for less money, there's the door. Adios. A lot of people in the story were telling me Their job, even as in the 90s or early 2000s, they would still type memos up for bosses. They would still go and grab coffees or go and grab lunch for bosses. They would organize holiday parties. They would answer phones. And a lot of that is just happening by being outsourced now. Uh, in some cases, it's being outsourced to technology or automation or Grubhub can bring the coffee or the lunches now. Um, and in other cases, it's literally being uh, outsourced to India. Like a lot of professions, this profession is upskilling. A lot of the new job descriptions for new hires in this field want college degrees. They want to turn this role into something more like a chief of staff and less like someone who's doing sort of the back-end office work. But the thing that's weird here is that isn't the economy doing pretty well right now and that 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 there are more jobs than there have been in the past? So why are these jobs being eliminated? The fundamental thing to understand about the U.S. economy is jobs are plentiful. You can get a job in the United States in 2019 or probably 2020. Getting a good-paying job is not as easy, though, even as it was, say, 15 to 20 years ago. And that's what's really different since we come out of the Great Recession. And this isn't a Trump issue or an Obama issue. It's, it's just the economy is fundamentally changing and middle-class paying roles are going away. And the administrative assistants are a key example of that. And factory workers are another one. And instead, the jobs that we're creating are either over $100,000 a year coder manager type jobs or jobs that pay under $30,000 a year. And I always keep this sign on my desk to remind me that six of the 10 fastest growing jobs in the United States pay less than $27,000 a year. So what do you think this trend tells us about what we can expect from the future of the U.S. economy? This is another example of what we're calling the barbell economy, where you have jobs that, that earn forty to 60000 a year, middle-class jobs are going away, and the jobs the economy is creating in the United States are either super high-skilled, high-paid, 100000 or more type jobs, your coders, your managers— or they're 30,000 and under jobs, home health aides, your food prep workers. And there's really just this erosion of, of middle-class jobs. We're just not creating a lot of middle-paid jobs. And that's a real fundamental problem. Whether it's the factory workers or whether it's these women in administrative roles, when you lose your middle-paid job, it's very hard to get one of those 100,000 or more jobs. So people are literally falling downward. Heather Long writes about the economy for The Post.
what's really set Apple apart from its competitors, namely the Google Play Store, is that from day one, the App Store has really been a curated place. Reid Albergati is a tech reporter for The Post. They've really restricted what people can do on the App Store, namely when that comes to kids. And they say, if we see any content that's over the line on the App Store, we reserve the right to pull that content, especially if it involves children. So they've, they have been creating this big marketing push to make the App Store seem like a really safe place for kids. And that emphasis on safety for kids who download apps on their iPhones. It's why Reed was confused when he heard about the growing popularity of random chat apps and the experiences that children have when they use them. I came across these apps on the App Store where you're supposed to video chat with a stranger and kids like to use these for some reason. I pretty much use them with my friends as a joke. We used to like go on and I guess just mess with people. We thought it was funny. There's actually dozens of them on the App Store. Yubo, Chat Live, Scout. Chat with strangers or something like that. Sorry, you've probably never heard of any of those apps. I hadn't either. But one of the apps, Monkey, right now is the number 10 social networking app in the App Store. Oh, wow. So it's one of those things where you log on and then it just like randomly pairs you in a video chat with another person somewhere in the world. And it's like you don't like approve who it is. There's not any sort of criteria. It's just like a random human shows up on the other side of the screen. That's right. And there's pictures of you know, teenage girls like lying on their bed, holding their cell phones, like on in the promotional material for these apps. So it seems like there's clearly being marketed to, to kids, a lot of them. Like, because I know a lot of apps just say like, are you over the age of 17? And you just press yes, and then you're in the app. Kira, who I talked to for this story, um, she's 18 now, but she talked about using these apps when she was much younger. And was one of the kids who went on Chat for Strangers. That was her random chat app of choice. We thought it was funny acting like people that we weren't. So, like, I remember at one point, like, we were telling this guy that we were from Alaska, and I, me and my friends thought that was the funniest thing ever. She said that it started out as something she would do with friends, like at sleepovers, um, which seems to be a popular thing. Um, I kind of felt adult-ish in a way. Because I was talking to um, older people acting like an older person. And, like, it, I guess it just gave me a sense of, oh, look, like, I can talk to adults without them knowing that I'm a kid, if that makes sense. And when did you start using it on your own? I guess shortly after I was doing it with friends. And at first I thought, like, I was just, like, going to mess with people because when I was doing it with friends we got some weird like pervy comments but it wasn't anything too much and then I don't know what difference it was when I went on by myself but when I went on by myself it was like really creepy I guess because like once people started asking for my age I probably should have stopped talking to them right away but instead I didn't and so it got pretty creepy pretty fast can you describe what you mean by creepy? Um, like they would like they would automatically start uh, talking sexual, and even if I said because like I was twelve, but like I knew I wasn't supposed to be on there, so I would say sometimes I would say like I'd be fourteen or fifteen, and they'd still say like, "Oh, that's okay, that's fine," and then like ask for nudes or like ask to send pictures. 
and I'd get creeped out and hang up. And then when it started happening multiple times in a row, I was like, uh, I should probably not be on this app anymore. And I start reading the reviews of these apps and there are all sorts of reports of bad stuff happening. That you, shockingly. Right, shockingly, right? And when we talk about bad experiences, we're talking about, I imagine, like sexual harassment on the app or inappropriate content that, that is being seen by kids. Yeah, so what happens is, is kids go on these apps, and this is, this is all just according to these reviews. They go on these apps, and they get connected to this random person on the other end, and all of a sudden that person is exposing themselves. Or maybe it progresses a little bit more slowly than that, but pretty soon they're asking this underage person using the app to expose themselves or send nude photos or go over to another app where more bad stuff happens. So these reviews are, a lot of people said in these reviews, like, I don't know why this is even on the app store. This is what some of the parents said to me that I talked to, is that they felt a little duped by Apple because Apple is out there marketing themselves as, you know, a a place that creates a safe platform that every single app is vetted. And so they didn't really think that their kid could, you know, that this type of app would even be on the app store. So they weren't they weren't really looking out for it. Because it seems like if these are apps that are being used for these kinds of purposes and that kids are are seeing all this inappropriate content, then maybe they shouldn't meet the standards of what gets to be on the app store. The way that like pornographic material cannot be on the app store or like lots of other inappropriate stuff is not accepted by Apple. That's right. And I just wanted to see is this is this a common experience that people have, or am I just seeing a couple of maybe maybe a couple of really bad experiences sort of risen to the top? But there's so many reviews. There's no way I'm going to be able to scroll through on my phone. So I'm like, I wish there was a way I could get these reviews into a spreadsheet and I could sort of read and see how prevalent this is. So what did you do? So I emailed a couple of people at the Washington Post and said maybe someone at the Post knows how to get these reviews into a database or a spreadsheet. And my message got forwarded and forwarded and forwarded eventually to Al Jory, who is a data scientist with the Post. And he said, you know, let me look into this. We had a conversation. And he came back, I think, the same day and said, I found a way to do it. Here's the spreadsheet. (laughs) I put all the reviews in there. And I'm thinking, great. Like, I can now look through these things. I can control F and find some key words and kind of get a sense of it. But he wanted to go even further. He said, you know, we can actually use a much more sophisticated form of searching. We can, we can use machine learning where we will train an algorithm to find this type of review that you want to find. And it will, it will crawl through and, and surface them for us. That seems very high tech. It's super high tech. So we went through this spreadsheet of reviews and the ones that had these types of what we called unwanted sexual content, we would put a one next to. And if it didn't have that, we'd put a zero next to it. And we also did the same thing for some other categories like racism or bullying was another thing. And once the algorithm that we created kind of sifted through these reviews for us, and then we were going through to verify each one and make sure that it had done its job correctly, All the bad reviews, the ones that we were sort of looking for, were put into one place. And it's it's just one after another. And we found, you know, 1,500 or so, actually 1,600 of them for 
for six apps. And it, it starts to get really depressing reading through it. I mean, it, you just realize that each one of these reviews is a real person and they've had a real experience that in many cases is described as being traumatic for them. It's kind of heartbreaking, to be honest. So what were your takeaways when you saw the number and the content of those reviews that were related to sexual misconduct? I mean, it, it raised a really important question, which is, you know, if Apple is saying they police the App Store for, for anything that could negatively affect kids, um, why aren't they reading these reviews? And if they are reading these reviews, what do they think about it? Um, are they doing something to try to stop this? And, you know, that was what we went and asked Apple about. And what did they say when you asked them? Well, they said that if they find that an app is is allowing this type of type of content, over the line content, that they will go back to the developer and try to work with the developer to get their app in line. They require these apps to have some sort of content moderation. So as long as you're as long as the app has a way for the users to flag inappropriate behavior, then that's okay. And it, it turns out that a lot of the companies that run these apps are just very small. And overseas, there are a few people. Um, it's, it's really difficult to know exactly how aggressive they are in the content moderation or how effective they are. So the app reviews, it turns out, are actually really important. That, that's, it's one of the best ways you can really tell how well is a company doing at, at blocking this type, type of stuff. So then... If Apple cares so much about creating a space where the app store is safe for children, why aren't they looking at the comments? I don't know. I mean, that's that's one of the things I asked Philip Shoemaker, who used to run App Store Review for Apple. He said that he suggested that. He thought that Apple should create some sort of bot, that was his term, to crawl the app store and look for these types of reviews. Which theoretically, I mean, you all did it and you don't even work for Apple. So it right. seems like that would be well within Apple's capability to do. Right. We we did it and we are definitely not the largest company in the world <laughs> by, <laughs> by market cap. So I think Apple has enough resources to do this. And I think it is one question they didn't answer, which is why don't they do this? And do they see it as their responsibility to make sure that all these apps are free from inappropriate content? Or do they just say, you know, these are third-party apps and we can't, we can't watch everything? They didn't specifically address that in their on-the-record comment. But I think there is this, generally there is this debate on a platform, who's responsible, right? These, these apps, in a way, are kind of platforms within a platform, right? Especially when you, when you look at the big tech companies like Facebook, right? So everyone's criticizing Facebook for its moderation of its platform uh, when it comes to disinformation, white nationalism, things like that. Um, people are not criticizing Apple for allowing Facebook to exist. But these apps that we're talking about they're really a different category. You can go on Facebook and never run into any of that content if you're lucky and if you have the, you know, the correct sort of friend circles. Whereas on these apps, if you use them long enough, you're probably going to run into some very inappropriate content. They essentially become sexual apps, um, which... You know, you can argue about whether or not that's okay or good, but 
you know, if you're Apple and you're claiming that you don't allow this type of stuff and there it is, I think that raises uh, serious questions. Reed Albergati covers technology for The Post. And now, one more thing. In just a few moments, I'll sign an executive order to combat anti-Semitism. This action makes clear that Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits the federal funding of universities and other institutions that engage in discrimination, applies to institutions that traffic in anti-Semitic hate. On Wednesday, President Trump signed an executive order dealing with anti-Semitism on college campuses. There's pretty widespread agreement that anti-Semitism is rising in the country, and particularly there have been incidents at universities. What there's not widespread agreement about is how to handle it. And the executive order that President Trump signed was pretty controversial. I'm Julie Zosmer. I'm a religion reporter at The Post. So there's two elements of this executive order that have caused a lot of controversy. One is how it defines anti-Semitism. The other is how it defines Jews. It defines anti-Semitism using a definition from a Holocaust remembrance organization that includes a lot of anti-Israel speech as examples of anti-Semitism. That's the first controversy. And that could be used against pro-Palestinian activists on college campuses. The second controversy is that this executive order relates to something called Title VI, which is a piece of federal civil rights legislation that applies to discrimination based on race and based on national origin. It does not apply to religious discrimination. So if this order says that anti-Semitism falls under Title VI, it says that you can interpret anti-Jewish discrimination not as religious discrimination but as discrimination based on race or nationality. And there are many, many Jews who say Judaism is not a nationality. Judaism is certainly not a race. It's a religion. You would expect Jews to be the first people to say that's great. And instead, the Jewish community has been very divided about this particular order. There are many liberal Jewish groups who have immediately said they are very concerned and angry about this order, both because they're worried about the civil rights of pro-Palestinian activists and they're worried about free speech on college campuses, and because they are fearful of what it means to say that Jews are an ethnic or racial or nationality group, that that is a frightening thing for a lot of Jews. On the other hand, there are more politically conservative Jews who have expressed gratitude for this order and said anti-Semitism is a big problem and maybe this isn't exactly the way that they expected the administration to go about handling it, but they're grateful to have a powerful order to try to protect college students. This is not entirely new. We've known for a little while that the Trump administration views Judaism as a nationality in some sense. But this executive order makes that clear. Julie Zosmer covers religion for The Post. 
that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, a story about the rise of clinics promising new stem cell therapies, despite the lack of any real evidence that these treatments do any good. I mean, to lose that kind of money, I felt really stupid. You know, think I fell for it. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.